is Generation Justice, a multimedia project that trains youth to harness the power of media. I'm Kateri Zuni. New Mexico's history of colonization, genocide, and inequity are tied to today's resistance, resilience, and liberation. Our future is dependent on how well we honor and navigate our past and present conditions. So tonight, on this special edition of Generation Justice, we bring you one of the voices of our State of Resilience campaign, Lila June Johnston. Lila is a Diné artist, activist, and songwriter. She sits down with Generation Justice fellow Christina Rodriguez to learn more about resilience in New Mexico and how her own personal experiences as an Indigenous woman have helped her to build resilience. She is one of the many voices of the State of Resilience campaign, which Generation Justice launched with our partner, Konalma Health Foundation, and our collaborators, Strong Families New Mexico and Olay New Mexico. As always, we'll start our program with some music. Here is a song by Lila June. It's called All Nations Rise. Indigenous people, shine your light, we are equal. I remember the days when our prayers were illegal. I remember the days when being Indian was lethal. Yeah, we had a rough past, but get ready for the sequel. Get ready for the glorious comeback of our people. Oh, yeah. Rise up. This is Christina Rodriguez with Generation Justice, and I'm here with Lila June Johnston, who is joining us for our State of Resiliency campaign. She is a Diné poet, activist, and songwriter, and we are super excited to have her talk with us about what resiliency means. Tell us more about yourself. Hello, my kin, my people. I'm the Black Charcoal Streak Division of Tachitni Clan of the Diné people. Haskai Diné Ebashishchi Ashinhe Dashiche Belagana E Dashinele Taos, New Mexico, Dayton Ashan. That's where I'm from. Beidil Dasanil Shiran. I live in Albuquerque now. Akwit Ego Diné Astanishla. In this manner, I present myself as a Diné woman. Um, also work a lot with um, music. Um, poetry, spoken word, hip-hop, to try and get my message out. Uh, I just finished my master's degree at UNM in uh, education for Native youth. And the most recent project is community curriculum development in Denebakea, Navajo homeland, where we are working with the community to create our own summer school, which kicks off next month. How do you define resiliency? The way I would define resiliency is really related to prayer because when I was really at rock bottom and had a hard time because I was really born into drug culture and I was born into rape culture uh, and got severely caught up in both of those things. And like most women, where we think that what happens to us is our fault, we start to self-destruct. And even though these things started to happen to me when I was a very young woman, I still thought that they were my fault. Like I, I could have 
kicked the person, or I could have ran away, or I could have said no, or shouldn't have walked into the room, or I shouldn't have drank that night. All these coulda, woulda, shoulda things. And um, I think that uh, feeling of, of shame that plagued me and in ways that I could, that were so deep I could hardly even untangle them or decipher them, uh, that that really led to more drugs and more alcohol because I just didn't feel good about myself. Um, and even led to cigarette smoking because I didn't have any self-worth, you know, like why would I work to preserve my lungs if I'm not really all that valuable? And if people are treating me like trash, then maybe I am trash. I uh, started to internalize all of these um, labels that the society had placed on me. But there came a time when, um, around 2010, when I was studying abroad in college, and I actually was in an 8.8 uh, magnitude earthquake in Chile, uh, when I shattered the right side of my pelvis and three uh, vertebrae were fractured. Um, and I was really deep into drugs. Um, like I, like I was saying, you know, my spirit was broken, my heart was broken, my mind was broken because I was so high on ecstasy and all these different things that I was taking that um, I basically um, had no choice left but to pray. And so that's why prayer is so important to me as a, as, as, not, not as an indigenous woman, but as a human being, um, to know that there are so many things behind us to, that can help us um, to create um, a, a, a real wonderful and a really big shift in our lives. So it was at that point that I called upon spiritual help that a lot of spiritual help started to come. And um, the only way I could really break free from drug addiction was by understanding that what happened to my body was not my fault. So there was a lot of people coming up to me, um, helping me understand this, you know, like in coincidental ways, you know, that you couldn't really explain in any other way, but uh, except for some sort of divine intervention and help. And they started to teach me that, um, no, what happened to me was not my fault. No, it does not make me less of a woman. No, it does not change me in any way because you know, no matter what people do to your body, they can never touch your soul. And your soul is what you are. You know, your body comes and goes in a flash, but your soul remains. And so if they can't touch your soul, then they never really touched you at all. And so they helped me to see that, that um, I'm unscathed from all of these experiences and that I can actually um, live my life with a lot of um, uh, honor. And, and virtue and beauty and that, yes, those things were weird and yes, those things were sad and yes, those things were um, deplorable, but that doesn't make me deplorable. And so realizing that helped me bounce back and, and Creator was saying, you know, I still want you to fight for me in this world. And so my new addiction became community service for the people and realizing that I could devote all my energy to um, creating festivals for children or um, writing music that helps people get through their day or um, creating a concert to raise awareness about whatever. Um, and so all of these things started to become my new, my new high. And the cool thing about that was that I never came down and I didn't have to pay any money for it and I never had a hangover. 
but I was just always high and I'm still high. <laughs> Four and a half years later, after being sober all this time, I'm feeling really good. And so that resiliency, I cannot deny that that resiliency was based 150% on my prayer because it was in that dark night uh, where I was pretty much, um, how would you say, at rock bottom that I reached out for help. And it was at that point when everything started to shift for me. So I can't leave creator out of that story. I can't leave creator out of my definition of resilience because um, it is through that that we can uh, rise up again. How can we build resiliency? I think we build resiliency through many means, and it really depends on what kind of resiliency you're talking about. The resiliency I was just talking about in my story is personal resiliency, being able to wake up again in the morning and knowing that you are worthy of Creator's love, knowing that you're worthy of creating something beautiful. But there's also uh, social resiliency on a more collective scale. And to me, that involves forgiveness. Because if we don't know how to forgive, as an indigenous woman, right now I'm doing this interview in a hall called Wande Onyate Hall. Onyate um, chopped the foot off of every Akama person. And so how do I, and this is very representative of what it's like to be an indigenous woman, is you're literally living in structures that glorify the oppression and destruction of your people. You're going to school in these structures, you drive by these structures, it's on the $20 bill, it's Kit Carson Park, it's everywhere you look, you are being reminded that your people were brutally uh, slaughtered, <laughs> essentially. And so how do you, as a collective, bounce back from that, a diverse multi-ethnic, multi-generational collective, how do you heal from that kind of trauma? Um, and to me, that resiliency is activated and carried out through forgiveness. Because if me, if I don't forgive, which doesn't mean that what happened was okay, it means that I choose to respond to that hatred with love. And I choose to pray for the soul of Onyate, I choose to pray for the soul of Kit Carson, I choose to pray for all those who benefit off of those structures still today. Um, and I choose to pray for their liberation as well and their healing and their blessing, whatever that might mean. Then I am relieved of my um, incessant feelings of bitterness and hatred and anger. And when we forgive, it's sort of this alchemical process where uh, people get so shocked. They're like, wow, you're gonna forgive that? Well, what can I forgive? And wow, you just forgave me? Maybe I should do something to, to reverse the legacy of trauma in this state. And when you respond to all of this trauma with love and with kindness and forgiveness, you can really um, rock people's worlds and help them to see a pathway out of the cycle of violence. And so when we forgive, we literally stop that karma of just cyclic oppression and oppressed peoples becoming oppressors themselves because they can't let go of the fear and the anger. Well, forgiveness, we let go of all of that and we step into a new place where we can actually live as, as brothers and sisters the way we were meant to. Then you get into um, ecological resilience, which is really important right now because of global warming. We're gonna need to be more adaptable and more um, resilient than ever before because we're, we just had snow 
a couple days ago in the desert and it's already summertime. Um, we're gonna need to plant diverse seeds. We need to go back to indigenous um, ways of planting and remember that we need to be able to create our own food for our own communities if we're truly gonna survive this great shift that's, that's occurring right now. And so in the Andes, what they do is they plant many different types of potatoes, many different types of certain crops so that if one uh, fails, the other survives. And so they have ideas about which year, what kind of year it's gonna be and which one they should plant more of. But right now, in terms of ecological resiliency, we need to be um, really hammering on the importance of diversity, diversity of crops, diversity of planting locations, um, and all these things so that we can actually adapt when those big shifts come. So there's sort of that personal resiliency, there's that social resiliency, that's ecological resiliency, and I'm sure there's more types of resiliency that we need to be looking at right now, but for me at this time in my life, those are the three that really I know how to talk about because they're the ones that I have uh, experience and knowledge I have about those topics, but um, ultimately I think the, the core principle is prayer, I think, for all, for all three of those. Um, and I think we live in such a secular society that says, oh, there's no prayer allowed or because sometimes we had bad experiences with prayer. You know, we went to a church that was supposedly prayerful, but ended up hurting us or hurting people we loved. And so um, returning to a prayer that is benevolent and that does not um, work to oppress or control and, and realizing that we are spiritual beings living in a on a blue ball that's circling around a star that's circling around a black hole and people still don't believe in miracles. You know, we need to come back to that truth that we are uh, miracles living in a miracle, committing miracles. So I think if we can get back to that, we'll have more and more of our, um, we'll be more in touch with the reality of, of the miracle. And if we're more in touch with reality, we're more in touch with uh, the solutions that we need. What examples of resilience do you see in New Mexico? So there's a lot of resiliency in New Mexico, and uh, one major manifestation of that that I know personally is Regeneration Festival, which occurs in Taos, New Mexico once a year. And what we do is we celebrate children, we celebrate teenagers, we celebrate youth, we take them on hikes, we have a big concert in the park, we um, do pretty much whatever they want to do. Um, but a big thing we do is we take a prayer walk to the Gorge Bridge where a lot of our young people jump off when they can't uh, take it in this world anymore. And it's all started in August of 2011 when four of our young people attempted suicide in, in one month. And we, we lost uh, our young people that year. And we actually lose them every year. And the issue of youth suicide is especially heartbreaking because if we aren't creating a world that our children want to stay in, then what are we doing, <laughs> you know? So our response to that was not, oh, I'm so sad, I'm gonna go in my room and just close the door. No, we said we're going to bounce back and we called it Regeneration Festival because we wanted to be like the forests are after forest fire. So after a forest fire, there's a lot of ashes, there's a lot of flames, and it's a lot of tragedy, but you use those ashes to um, nourish the soil so that the seeds and the shoots of the next generation can be um, 
uh, more nourished and more stronger, actually. And so that's sort of the model, the biomimicry that we're attempting is that, okay, we lost all these kids, that's a tragedy, but let's use that tragedy to fuel our motivation to change the world for them. So the the community got really, really uh, fired up and started just the town, the whole town uh, just got really involved. And now when we look at that bridge, we don't think, oh, we suck. Rather, we think, oh, you know, remember what we did when the, the ground began to shake beneath our feet? You know, we got together as one people and we prayed for the next generation. And the whole festival is founded on prayer and, and really being really clear that suicide is a spiritual issue and requires a spiritual solution. We, we can't conquer this with more juvenile detention, with more uh, bureaucratic programs that, you know, don't really address the, the soul wound that our youth face. And so um, just that's one major example, I think, in New Mexico of resilience. How do we convert these negative conditions in order to make a positive change? So a lot of people wonder, how do we convert the conditions and the situations around us to spark and catalyze change? Well, you think about how does any change happen? Um, You think about the Muslim ban, where we were literally banning people from our country based on their religious affiliation on a country that was supposedly uh, founded on religious freedom. Um, how did that change? Well, people, people felt inside them love and people decided to try and change it. And so they got out in the streets, in the airports, and, and thousands upon thousands of us gathered in the airports to say, no, this is not who we are. This is not who we want to be. We don't want to be bigots. Um, we don't want to be judging people based on what word they have for the sacred. And so that was all sparked by someone who's decided to try. And I think sometimes the world's problems are so uh, ubiquitous and so overwhelming that we think, how are we even going to make a dent in this? Well, those who have the courage to just try, they plant a seed. And Creator can work through something that tries. Creator cannot work through something that doesn't try. And so if we have the courage to step up and just try, we may be surprised what we create. With Regeneration Festival, all I wanted to do was have a a small ceremony in the park, you know, one day, maybe an hour long, but then it started snowballing to a four-day festival for children that's now in its seventh annual that has occurred in 35 communities around the world, 17 different countries. Because our model was so beautiful, people started picking it up around the world. And they celebrate with us every September. I didn't know I was going to do that. And it wasn't me, to be fair, but I didn't know I was going to spark that. But my audacity to try allowed uh, all those things to happen. You think about Standing Rock. Um, that sacred fire was lit over a year ago, and there was no more than 20 people standing around it, facing a multi-billion dollar uh, corporation. And they didn't know if they were going to do anything, spark any change, but their audacity to try, their audacity to light that fire, you know, created a, a global movement. And now nobody thinks about water the same. They realize when they're sitting at the restaurant and they're holding that glass of water, you know, this is not just a glass of water, water is life, you know. And so we're starting to think differently. So I I would say that the thing that sparks change is people's audacity to try, people's audacity to 
to face insurmountable odds in the face and say, you know, I don't care, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try anyways. And I think that that's really um, where, not only where change happens, but that's the only way change can happen. How can New Mexico transfer our deficits into strengths? I think that New Mexico is often looked at for its weaknesses. Uh, we're rated one of the worst places to raise a child. We have high poverty, infant mortality, all the things you don't want first place in, you know, we have first place in. Um, and I think that this is uh, seen as a deficit, uh, through deficit lens. But if you see it through a strength lens, it relates very much to my own personal story where, you know, I was addicted to drugs, I was selling drugs, I was, uh, I was just barely squeaking by. I had a, a hip um, broken. I had like um, very little to, to be proud of, it seemed, as, as a woman. Um, but Creator saw me through a different lens. Creator didn't say, oh, you know, you bad girl, stop selling drugs, you're a horrible person, you suck. Instead, Creator said, I'm so sorry what happened to you. You know, I'm so sorry. And here's the good news that none of it makes you less of a person, you know. And when I heard that, then it helps me to see New Mexico in a new light. Uh, and not only did Creator say that, but Creator also said something to the effect of, you are not getting targeted and destroyed because you're bad. You're getting targeted and destroyed because of the amount of light you're capable of bringing to the world. And the dark doesn't like that. So it's trying to take you down in every way it can. And so we think about Vietnam, we think about uh, Korea, we think about um, all these places where war went after it. You know, to me, these places are sacred places with cultures that are very beautiful and, and, and wise and strong. And you think about the Middle East, you know, why does it have so much bombs thrown at it? Why is there so much violence and, and discord? is because of the sacred place that it is. And it's not the only sacred place, but it's a very sacred place. And, and so sometimes the brightest lights get a, attacked the, the deepest. And here in New Mexico, we have a bright light. We have some of the most um, beautiful sacred places on earth. And we have a lot of cultures that lived here, you know, um, that really had a really firm idea of how to live sustainably, how to live resiliently, and how to live um, kindly to one another. And so we got hit, and we got hit hard. I mean, my people, 7,000 or 9,000 of us were put in a concentration camp for four years, and 7,000 of us died in this camp just down the road. And so you think about what happened to this state, and people say, oh, you have drug problems, you have alcohol problems, but you know what? why do we have these problems? It's not because we're bad people. It's because we were targeted uh, very intentionally and really uh, destroyed in, in many ways. And so we don't have these issues because we um, are insufficient people. We have these issues because we're still talking in buildings named after people who glorify that kind of trauma. And so in this way, I think that if we look at New Mexico and say, okay, yes, we have some issues, but if we have the ability to um, see that through these experiences, we have become stronger. And even though my journey was hard, 
going through abuse, going through drug addiction and all that, um, I wouldn't trade it for anything because at this point I can help people who are addicted. I can help people who've been through uh, physical trauma. I can help people who went through poverty because I know where they're coming from. And so in this manner, I think if we tap into our experience and tap into our story and see it not as a story of shame, but as a story of resiliency, that we as a, as a people here in this state have the opportunity to, to model to the world what uh, multi-ethnic reconciliation looks like, what spiritual solutions to uh, widespread addiction look like, and what we as a community can spark and change with our um, resiliency. I think we could see that this is not a deficit state, this is a state of strength. And, and sometimes the, the darker uh, the hole that you're in, the more beautiful it is when you climb out. And the more tools and, and abilities you have to heal the world when you climb out. And so I don't blame us for being in the position we're in. Um, it's due to not just one, but many layers of war and trauma that have occurred in this desert. Um, I don't think that it speaks that there's anything wrong with us. I, I think that it means that we've been targeted and hit very hard. And still, despite that, we wake up in the morning with a smile on our face and a prayer on our lips and love in our hearts. And so to me, that is strength. Welcome back to Generation Justice, where tonight we are celebrating the State of Resilience campaign by sharing the stories of resilience from Lila June Johnston, a Diné poet, activist, artist, and songwriter. Let's rejoin Lila June with GJ Fellow Christina Rodriguez. If you could speak to policymakers, what would you tell them? So I think what I would share with policymakers is to uh, think about the word president, you know, it, its root is preside. And this is a very Western way of thinking about overseeing a population, is you're, you're presiding above them. You know, you're kind of apart and above the people you're serving. Um, and even when you go to court, the judge is apart and above. And so all of these infrastructures are created very intentionally to give the illusion of, of power to some, and, and less to others. And so um, I think the advice I'd give to policymakers is to think about uh, the Diné perspective of community uh, leadership, which is not ah, and that means that you are uh, serving your people from below. Uh, you're serving your people as a supporter from not necessarily having a nicer car or a nicer house. Like you think about the White House, you know, they kind of reserve a nice fancy house with nice heating and food for the president, right? In our paradigm, the leader makes sure everyone else is fed first. You, you serve from below. And it's also related to um, what, what Jesus was talking about. And I'm not really Christian, but I appreciate this story where he said, um, you know, all of the disciples were saying, uh, Rabbi, Rabbi, what should we do? You know, you're our teacher. And he said, well, do, do as I do. If, I, if I'm your teacher, do what I do. And he got on his hands and knees and he started to wash the feet of each and every disciple, uh, which is one of the most humble and kind things you could do in that culture at that time. And so he's showing them that being a leader doesn't mean you get to wear a nicer suit and drive a nicer car and, and, and have special treatment, but rather 
you are, are right there in the trenches with the people and you are serving and, and doing some of the most difficult work. And so I think if we as policymakers can think not that we are above people, but that we are of people and that we are people, then we can start including more community input. Um, and having studied Freire quite a bit, Paulo Freire, who wrote Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he talks a lot about um, how, how the, the true ally of the oppressed is, is, is the person who has dialogue with the oppressed, does not have a one-way communication with the oppressed, but rather continually seeks dialogue, reflection, and um, communication, not communiques, he says, where you're not talking at people, but you're seeking to, to communicate and learn from your students just as you are going to uh, learn through teaching. And so I think in this um, case, it's, it's very important because we've had a, a Western hierarchical government imposed on this land, really, when, when not too long ago we didn't have that kind of government structure. Uh, we had decentralized government structures where different tribes and families would take care of themselves. And so those were the two things I'd really say to uh, policymakers is, number one, uh, remember that being a leader does not uh, set you apart and above from the people, but rather it means you are um, working to ensure everyone is fed first. And, and number two is to really think about seeking out the, the ideas and, and more than input, because input is kind of, a, um, I think, a, a false generosity where we you know, get some input and we're the ones who are ultimately going to make this decisions, but you can give us input, but really give decision-making back to the people and, and trust them, have faith in them to build their own future in a beautiful way. How are music and resilience related to one another? Music and resilience are very related. When the enslaved peoples first came to the South, their music was their unifier. Um, and so much so that the people who were in, enslaving them uh, took away all of their instruments. Um, and that's how tap dancing was invented because the people had all of their instruments stripped away from them so they decided to use their feet. And so music is a powerful way of um, uniting the people, uh, providing vision, um, providing uh, inspiration and providing sometimes just the energy you need to get through um, your day. And so um, you think about the 60s too, when music was very much um, an outlet for a lot of people's uh, angst and, and discontent. And not only was it an outlet for discontent, but it was a medium through which people were challenging uh, systems of oppression and systems of um, and sustainability. And so what, did, what happened at that point? Um, I think that the world caught on to the power of music and they, they, they killed it. <laughs> they killed it by uh, commercializing it and turning it from uh, a thing we do for the people to a thing we do for fame and money. It's a very big difference between musicians that make their music for the people and musicians that do it for fame and money. A very big difference, you can hear it a lot. And um, you can't really mix the two. It doesn't work out. Um, and so I think that, that the 60s, the music really showed us how uh, potent it was in, in, in catalyzing social change and um, 
bringing people hope because I think resiliency and hope are really connected. How can you bounce back if you don't think there's any purpose for it, if you don't think there's any uh, reason for it, if you don't think you're going to succeed? And so hope is the, is the root of resilience, and, and music is the water for that root. And so if we have music to water the hope of the people, they're going to bounce back a lot more. And I know a lot of people who've come up to me who say, you know, I listen to your song every morning and it helps me get ready for the day. And I'm like, wow, I get to write a song that helps people like that? That's awesome. Like, I'd rather write a song that helps one person like that than write a song that goes platinum and doesn't help anyone feel that, that, that hope. And so um, in that way, I think that music and resilience are very much interrelated. Is there anything else that you would like to add? Well, I think that we can't forget that resiliency is uh, very much uh, also uh, rooted by love. And, and love is, uh, is, is the closest word in English that we can get to this feeling of kinship and, and camaraderie and, and kindness and generosity that that we're going to need as a people, not just red people or not just white people or black people or yellow people, but all people. We are all going to need this love. We always have needed this love in order to continue forward in our journey. And so there's one last thing I could say. It would be that, you know, to strengthen our ability to love, to love ourselves, to love each other, to love our enemies, and to love our Mother Earth, to love our sky, and our love for our people, all people, is the only force strong enough to push us through that finish line and to, to help us survive this great shift that's occurring globally right now. And if we have the ability to do that, to, to keep love as our front and our center, uh, then we can bounce back from anything. And you think about people who, um, whose, whose babies are, you know, trapped under a car and all of a sudden they have this strength to, you know, pick up the car. Or there's lots of different stories like that. I mean, for me, the thing that gave me the strength to get sober, the strength to forgive all the people who abused me, the strength to look at all those situations of abuse, because it's hard to look at it again and reopen those memories and forgive. But my love for my people and my sisters, who I know are going through the same thing right now, that's what pushed me through that process, that healing process. And I knew that if I could heal, I could help. And so uh, that's, that's the biggest engine, I think, of resiliency is, is that love for, for each other and, and ultimately love for the self. Because we all make mistakes and a lot of us want those mistakes to hold us back want those mistakes to keep us captive to our own shame and guilt. But if we love ourselves enough to forgive ourselves and give ourselves a tabula rasa in the morning, a clean slate and say, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let myself shine in all of my brilliancy today. Then we can become those warriors. We can become those bridges. We can become those hollow bones through which the spirit of creator can blow through into this world and blow away all of that hopelessness and pain. That's the main thing I would say. Thank you so much, Lila June, for joining us to talk about what resiliency means. I think your work exemplifies 
what resilience can look like in so many different ways, whether that's words or song or prayer. And I think that's been really powerful for all of us as young women of color to see and to see your success in that and to hear the way you're passionate about resiliency in your everyday life has been incredibly powerful. So thank you for joining us in this campaign and to have this conversation. For Generation Justice, this is Christina Rodriguez. The State of Resilience is a six-week campaign that Generation Justice and the Kohn Alma Health Foundation are proud to present to our community, along with our collaborators, Strong Families New Mexico and Olay New Mexico. The messages this campaign carries are meant to highlight the many ways that New Mexicans have overcome our circumstances for centuries. Tonight, we've shared only one of the amazing stories that live in the state of resilience, and we encourage you all to visit the rest of these resilient voices in the following places. You can view and share the rest of our videos, which are published daily, on our Facebook event page, The State of Resilience Campaign. They are also viewable and shareable on Twitter and Instagram. You can share your own stories of resilience by posting on our Facebook event page or tweeting us using the hashtag ResilientNM. A full list of collaborators in this exciting new campaign is available at generationjustice.org forward slash resilient. We've come to the end of another great program. We would like to thank our guest, Lila June Johnston, for sharing your story and your resilience with us. Production assistance came from Alden Bruce, Camaria Umi, Moises Villanueva, Cristina Rodriguez, and Roberta Rael. And thank you to all of our youth producers. We could not do what we do without you. Generation Justice would also like to thank KUNM for helping to bring you KUNM listeners, the voices of young people in New Mexico. Stay connected with us. Check out our website, generationjustice.org, where you can listen to all of our past radio programs, see music playlists, read our blogs, watch videos, and so much more. Our podcasts are available on iTunes, so be sure to subscribe and rate us. We're also active on social media, so make sure to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Generation Justice is funded by the W.K. Kellogg Foundation, with additional funding from the McCune Foundation, Kohn Alma Health Foundation, the Albuquerque Community Foundation, and of course, all of you who have contributed to our project by visiting our website and clicking Donate. I'm Kateri Zuni. Coming up on KUNM is Spoken Word, so stay tuned and join us next Sunday at 7 o'clock. Let's go. With all that space rolling by.
I was born in Eastern New Mexico Medical Center, the same hospital in Roswell where my parents had entered this beautiful state. Most forget that we exist even, but it don't matter. My soul feels at home in this region. I love Sandia sunsets. I'm a mountain man. I inhale the tranquility from the surrounding land. You might catch me in a hat with Duke City lettering. Know what I mean? All green, chilly, everything. One of the best places in the world, if you ask me. We have Christmas all year, half red, half green. I heard you don't like it here, and you saying bad things well i'll pay for the gas money just to help your sleep don't have a pro sports team so everyone's a lobo or maybe an aggie that's depending on who you going for it's not the land of entrapment it's the place where my mind is free finding peace away from the rest of the world so i can breathe hi mexico home is where the heart is new mexico never forget where i started they say it's not where you're from it's where you're at but i'm at where i'm from and when i leave i'm coming back hi mexico home is where the heart is Never forget where I started They say it's not where you're from It's where you're at, but I'm at Where I'm from, and when I leave, I'm coming back where most of my family stay I got friends in Gallup, Portales, Corrales Out to Santa Fe Carlsbad, Alamogordo, Rigadoso Farmington, Las Lunas, Las Cruces And Carrizozo From Morta to Santa Rosa to Bernalillo Crown Point, Tigre, C, Cuba, Taos, Pueblo, Pipa Shiprock, Hobbs, Hemison, Silver City Hatch, Clovis, Tucum, Carrizuni This is strictly for my people out there With that home state pride The way I feel when I see that Zia flag wave high. We got the best chili That's the truth, really I'm from Albuquerque, Burger, Duke City. More than a show about cooking meth, you know from television. We got strong community with culture and tradition. And this is my life, the Southwest days and times of a young man with a New Mexico state of mind. Yeah, New Mexico, home is where the heart is. New Mexico, never forget where I started. They say it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. But I'm at where I'm from, and when I leave, I'm coming back. New Mexico, home is where the heart is. New Mexico, never forget where I started. They say it's not where you're from, it's where you're at. But I'm at where I'm from, and when I leave, I'm coming back. New Mexico.